Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll hear from those whose mission it is to create a safer working environment for corrections officers and learn about an upcoming event that benefits future members of that profession. We'll check in with the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board and get the details of a campaign they've developed to help young children learn about the dangers of drinking. And we'll revisit a story day in the history of the Camelot era, a dinner that brought together some of the greatest influencers of the 60s. Senior Officer Eric Williams' death at the hands of a federal inmate at the Canaan Prison in Waymart sent shockwaves across the country and started a movement for safer conditions that continues till this day. In February of 2013, Williams was brutally attacked by Jesse Conwy with a sharpened weapon. Conwy was tried for the crime, found guilty of first-degree murder, and sentenced to life in prison, although prosecutors sought the death penalty. Eric's father, Don, and others are continuously lobbying for better staffing levels, and they are opposed to augmentation, which is sending guards to take on tasks in prisons they're not familiar with, creating further risk in an already dangerous place. We'll hear about the details of the Eric J. Williams Memorial Race, which is coming up in a few weeks. But first, we had the chance to speak to Don Williams about his continued efforts to make prisons safer. What we're working on right now is the uh, fact that the staffing levels in the prisons have actually gone down over the past several years instead of up, despite uh, the increase in uh, violence and staff injuries as well as injuries on inmates. So even though we've gotten a lot of uh, promises and, uh, you know, commitments to look into things, the reality is that this year they cut 6,000 positions out of the Federal Bureau of Prisons that they have no intention of filling, and uh, they're, uh, they're, they're trying to claim that these are safe levels. Obviously they're not. And I say obviously because, uh, you, you know, people were allowed to see the daily reports of the, the injuries and, and the uh, attacks on staff, they'd be appalled. So we're going to continue our, our campaign of trying to make people aware and, and particularly uh, legislators aware and, uh, until somebody does something. We certainly have a lot of the legislators here in the Northeast that I have to compliment them all. They, they've gotten behind the, uh, the corrections workers and they are doing their very best. And that's on both sides of the aisle, which is the way it really should be. The one thing we have succeeded is the other purpose of this race uh, is uh, in getting scholarships. And we've been able to give uh, scholarships every year to students, most of them criminal justice, but not all. And, uh, and so we, we're going to continue to do that. 
Okay, so do we call the race a success? Absolutely. The focus has changed a little bit of this race. I know it started as the race for justice, and now it has a little bit of a new name and maybe a little bit of a new focus. Well, yeah, we can't really call it the race for justice because the, the trial um, for Eric is over with, and, you know, we certainly don't feel any justice came out of that. Now it's a memorial race, and we've changed the name to that. To, you know, the Officer Eric Williams Memorial Race, and uh, that's what it will be. Let's talk about your contact with people across the country. You hear from a lot of individuals who have loved ones working in prisons, and I know that you often are keenly aware of what happens. When people contact you, uh, what are they telling you? Well, a lot of the people uh, that contact me are, again, concerned if it's a family member, they're concerned for their family that work there. Again, because they're very aware that the um, of a several issues. The, one of the issues is the staffing level. Uh, the other is that uh, you know they don't always follow through with some of the uh, the behavior management as they should, uh, and so some some of the families are worried about that. You know, it, it's almost the the biggest fear of all is that the people that are in the administrations, and this is this is states federal counties are not forthcoming and, and, and not honest about what these uh, staffing levels are and how unsafe they actually are. Tell us a little bit about some of the stories that you are hearing that uh, appall you. What, what are people telling you? What, what, are the, what are these guards facing day in and day out? Well, I just had a, a young lady write that, uh, you know, she'd been assaulted while on the job and that, uh, the administration at the prison literally turned their back on it, never filled out incident reports or anything else in order to make it look like that things were safer than they actually are. She actually couldn't get the kind of help she needed due to the assault because of this. Okay, So that's one of a, a number of those kinds of incidents, <laughs> you want to call it cover-ups, you know, and, and they happen. Well, how, how can uh, someone like that hold their administration for that? Uh, what can they do? How can they hold people accountable? I mean, one of the things they do, they, they do have a union and, um, you know, they go to the union, yet these things will get tied up and, and bogged down. I, I still think the right answer is to get those legislators that care about this going on to bring these administrators to the table. And they're starting to do that. You, you know, there's a, there's a lot of resistance and a lot of denial and a lot of uh, what I like is a smokescreen. They just had a hearing last week with the new director of the Bureau of Prisons, uh, Congressman Marino, and some of the people on the judiciary. And, you know, he went ahead and defended this idea of augmentation, you know, where you take a non-correctional staff and stick them into a housing unit, which is a big thing that the corrections officers are pushing back on. But anyway, he, he justified it and said it's all perfectly safe. There are no boots on the ground people in that hearing. So what I did was use our Voices of Joe Facebook page, told anybody who wanted to to write a rebuttal to what he said. And then I had uh, all of the legislators look at those rebuttals and that worked out pretty good. What was the result of that? What well, do you think, think happened? I think the result, and this is only a matter of a couple of days ago, so I, I think the result is going to be that a lot of the rebuttals that these <clears throat> corrections officers and family members wrote will now be formulated into questions for the next hearing, and, and they're much more concise and, and they won't be easy to dodge. So it's, it's given a voice to people who don't normally have a voice, 
And there's a lot of people out there who will privately message Voices of Joe and, you know, the organization that we have that, that lobbies. But they'll privately message it saying we, we were too afraid to be publicly say anything about our concerns, but, you know, they ask us to be the voice for them. You know, so they'll they'll put their issues down in a private message, and we'll carry it. We'll carry it forward. You you seem like somebody who doesn't who doesn't mind. You'll tell it like it is. You don't care about any kind of retribution. I don't work for them, so I'm not going to worry about it. These these issues contributed to my son's death, and uh, no, so I don't care about their feelings, and I don't care if uh, if it bothers them that I do this. I'll say what can't be said by some people, and in hopes that it doesn't happen to other people. Anybody push back on you? Not really. Uh, yeah, you know, I had comments made, <laughs> but uh, no, no real attempt to push back. No. Probably this race was the only thing I remember. The Bureau of Prisons back a few years ago, when I when I ran this race nationally, putting out a memo saying they couldn't hold it on on prison grounds, which he had no intention of doing in the first place. But other than that, no, they've they've not said anything. Uh, I think what they've done is they've, they've made every attempt to convince me that, that uh, everything's okay and that, you know, some of these officers are exaggerating the case. But that's not, that can't be when it's, when it's all across the nation. You know, when one or two people complain about something, well, then maybe it's not true. But, no, nah, there's too many, and it's, it's too widespread, and it's the same story. I think we have a tendency not to think too much about prisons in our own daily life because of the out-of-sight, out-of-mind dynamic that we see. What, what do you want people to know who are just average individuals about the situation? Well, I, I want people to know that, uh, you know, there's two parts to, to the law enforcement. We oftentimes think about, let's get the bad guy off the street to make us all safe. The ones that, quote-unquote, bad guys off the street, they have to put him somewhere. And what you have is a whole city of criminals that are operating as best as they can inside of that structure with a, with a, um, to set up criminal organizations, and you have only a handful of people trying to manage that. And I think that that job is, is far more dangerous because it's, it, it, there's a, you're, you're in danger 24-7 when you're working there as opposed to responding to a call on the outside. I mean, my son was a police officer as well as a corrections officer. And now that I've seen both sides of the picture, people need to understand that corrections is a branch of law enforcement and a very, very vital one. And sometimes even our lawmakers don't understand that. Certainly in your own personal life, you know that individuals who are incarcerated, some of them have absolutely nothing to lose. And I think that that makes it very, very dangerous for the officers behind those walls. Well, just, just like with my son's trial, this man murdered before. Now he murdered a corrections officer, my son. And he was doing life, and he gets a life sentence. So the word goes around, you know, very quickly that, look, you, you know, if you're doing life and you, you, you do something to a, a corrections officer, uh, nothing's really going to happen. You know, so you just painted a target on the back of the people who try to manage these kind of criminals. I, I understand people's, you know, sympathy toward, uh, you know, not liking the death penalty and stuff like that. But sometimes we need to we need to consider those that we put in harm's way when we're not willing to step up and, and draw a line somewhere.
and say certain things are just not acceptable. Don Williams is an advocate for enhanced procedures to keep corrections officers safe. We also spoke to Daryl Palmer, who has spent nearly three decades working in the field and is Northeast Regional Vice President of the Council of Prison Locals. Our biggest challenge today is staffing. Don't have enough staffing and it seems to be getting worse. I've been involved in, well, I've been hired by the Bureau of Prisons since 1990 and uh, right now I haven't seen it as worse as it's getting uh, to the point that uh, augmentation has become a regular thing, that they're augmenting staff uh, that don't normally be a correctional officer into these positions um, that is uh, raising the inherent safety of staff and inmates throughout the prisons. When the, these people go through this augmentation process, do they want to do it? I mean, I, if I knew one thing and then they said, well, you're going to have some kind of enhanced duties, I, I'd, I'd be kind of, I don't know, I'd be wary about it. Well, how do they feel? They don't want to do it because they can't do their job, um, and then they're doing double work. So if they can't get done what they're supposed to be doing, so if they're assigned to medical field, um, a medical secretary where she's working with records all day and keeping up on what is going on with the inmates' uh, medical records, the following day she comes in and that work is still there because it's not being done by anyone else. And no, they don't feel, um, when they're moved into them positions, they don't feel safe because they're not used to doing that. You know, when you get used to doing a certain position in a prison, uh, it becomes your position. Uh, I know that the, the agency says, well, everyone's a correctional officer first, but the fact of the matter is, is a correctional officer knows what's going on in his housing unit, knows the inmates, where these staff don't know the inmates. What can happen in situations like this, or has anything happened, uh, for example? Um, staff assaults is a big thing that happens. Inmates are getting away with more um, breaking rules um, because they're, they don't know the inmates, and they don't know the inmates' general behavior every day. And this relates to actually more violence amongst the inmates um, because they, can, they know they can get away with it. What is causing this? Is this uh, lack of people entering the field? Is this monetary? What is it? No, it's not a lack of people entering the field. It's um, a lack of, I believe, it could be the attorney general and the staff are, are, are saying that we need to cut back due to the inmate population going down. But the fact of the matter is, yes, the inmate population did go down, but it only went down in low security facilities and maybe medium security facilities. We don't have enough high bed space. Um, that's one of the problems we're running into now. And they say that they vacated 6,200 positions that were never staffed. That is also not true. Them positions were staffed prior in uh, 2016. And as people retired and moved on, they never filled them positions. So now we're behind the eight ball in the case that to hire correctional officers or any positions, it takes months and months to get that person into their position because of the training and the familiarization training that they go through. And by the time they go through their background investigation and everything else, um, you're talking three to five months. Does the attorney general understand that? I mean, is, is there a dialogue open between the parties? Um, we are trying our best. Of, we've been having uh, numerous roundtable meetings in Washington, D.C. We've been doing legislative events. Um, we've been doing news stories. We went as far as putting up billboards. Uh, there's one up on the Casey Highway here, but there's many down in Lewisburg, Allenwood area. Letter writing, knocking on doors. Congress and Senate are very aware of what's going on, and they're starting to question the 
director of the Bureau of Prisons. He just went through a, 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 a rigorous um, talking to and questionnaires to see what his answers are to why he's doing what he's doing. So, yes, Senate and Congress are very aware of it. Um, we're just hoping that the director um, sees the light and makes sure that he hires the proper amount of staff to run the prison safely. To say this is the worst you've ever seen, it is, is, it's pretty hard to hear considering what officers are facing in these prisons from a, a population that is violent and unpredictable. Yes, and, and it's, it, it is very unpredictable. And one of the biggest major problems we're having now is the, the amount of cell phones that are entering prisons, the amount of drugs that are entering prisons, uh, the synthetic drugs that are entering prisons. And it, it's, not, it's not because the staff don't know what they're doing. It's because a lot of it has to do with not having enough staff to properly screen everything before it comes into the prison. So in other words, our, a mailroom you know, mail staff may be short. So all the mail that comes in has to be screened. And these inmates are figuring out ways to soak this paper and send it in and get it inside the prisons which is causing a lot of inmates to be addicted to these drugs and a lot of programs also that the inmates are supposed to be getting is not happening due to the staff being pulled to augmentation for officers and when you augment that's actually dropping the amount of staff there is to respond to an incident. Daryl Palmer is the Northeast Regional Vice President of the Council of Prison Locals. He and other corrections officers come together each year for the Eric J. Williams Memorial Race, planned for Saturday, May 12th at Luzerne County Community College. Mary Beth Kaur is a member of the committee. It's extremely important because after the death of Eric, it was um, emphasizing safety within prisons and making sure that that doesn't happen again. This race like reintegrates that and it you know make, raises awareness to prison safety. Tell us the details of how people can get involved. You can go on to the Eric Williams Facebook site and from there you can link to online registration and also you can um, contact any one of us that are involved and from there we can lead you to registration. You can also sign up the day of the race at um, Luzerne County College. For more details, visit the Eric J. Williams Memorial Race Facebook page. The race is on Saturday, May 12th at Luzerne County Community College. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Talking to kids about a number of issues can be perplexing to parents, and the topic of alcohol education happens to be one of them. If your children are young, you best not wait too long. Children are trying alcohol at some pretty young ages these days, as you are about to find out from Elizabeth Bressel, director of the communications office for the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board. We sort of embarked on this research effort a couple of years ago, knowing that we wanted to do some sort of alcohol education um, campaign outreach. So we started doing a little research, digging into, you know, scientific journals, health journals, and, and even doing some of our own research by surveying Pennsylvania parents. And we did find some some statistics that are a little scary. There's the Journal of Adolescent Health that suggests one in three kids has tried alcohol by age eight. And by age 12, that number grows to two out of three. So that 
that in and of itself is a little shocking, but then when you consider the Journal of Substance Abuse says that children who begin drinking by age 13 are four times more likely to become alcohol dependent later in life, you know, that really underscored for us the need to develop a campaign that talks to parents about the importance of these discussions at ages perhaps earlier than they thought necessary. Pennsylvania's uh, statistics, are they dramatically different from other states, if you know? I don't know that, no. We, we took a look at some national research, and, and the research that we did specific to Pennsylvania, though, was really gauging parents' perceptions of alcohol, their own awareness of underage drinking, um, you know, when they think it's appropriate to talk to children, if they think it's their responsibility to talk to their children about alcohol. And what we found is that the vast majority of Pennsylvania parents, about 94%, they do believe that it's their job to have these conversations with the kids. It's, it's not up to the school. It's not up to the soccer coach. It's not up to, you know, the scout leader. Um, they know it's their job to have these conversations, but only about a third of them had ever seen or read or heard any information on how to approach it. So this campaign sort of aims to fill that gap. And uh, to reiterate, in case the people missed it, one in three kids has tried alcohol by the age of eight. So you have to think, Elizabeth, in your mind about age-appropriate discussions when the, when the kids are eight. And yep. I, I'm sure that uh, parents might want to know uh, what, what does work. What's an effective strategy in talking about this? Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, while those, those initial statistics are a little scary, there is a silver lining. Um, we also found that kids age 8 to 11 are sort of in that magical age where they're most receptive to parents' uh, feedback. They, they still trust their parents. They still like their parents. Um, so it's a great opportunity. And, and what we're stressing for parents is that this doesn't have to be one big intimidating discussion that, you know, you've got to prepare for and think about. Um, and they can actually be, as you said, very age-appropriate conversations, looking for everyday teaching moments. I, I have an eight-year-old son, and as we were developing this campaign, I was kind of in that boat. You know, I, I know it's my job, but maybe it's a little early, and how do I really do it? So once I, once I learned some of the tips and tools and know when, know how.org is the website that provides all of those. You know, we provide scenarios, we provide tips. It's all in digestible bits and pieces, so it's not overwhelming for parents. Um, but me personally, as I kind of became a little more um, comfortable with it, got over that mental hurdle of this is going to be really tough. It happened so organically. My son and I were reading Harry Potter last fall, and we got to the point in the in book one where Professor Quirrell gets Hagrid drunk to learn the secret of getting past Fluffy the Three-Headed Dog. Like, the light bulb went off, and I went, oh my gosh, this is it. This is the, you know, just a completely organic opportunity. Certainly wasn't expecting a drunk character in our evening self-selected reading, but I took advantage of that opportunity, and it was short and simple, and I just kind of got a baseline of what his understanding of alcohol was, what his, you know, he knows what drunk means. It's a little too much wine or a little too much beer for adults, and they start acting a little funny. Um, but it, it was it was an easy conversation, and it let me know where he is in his understanding and awareness, and it gave me the confidence to look for those opportunities on an ongoing basis. So we've had a handful of those conversations over the last few months. I have to ask you a question, which may make some of the listeners uncomfortable, but if people are in a family, and uh, they are the parents, obviously they're able to drink in their homes. Let's uh, You know, it's, it's legal. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Part of it is the behavior that's being modeled in front of their eyes. Are they going to be able to um, look at this in a way where they see maybe mom or dad uh, drinking mm -hmm. and they think, oh, all right, well, they do it, so it's going to be okay. 
absolutely. And that's one of the key takeaways that we found in talking to Pennsylvania parents through our focus groups um, is that Pennsylvania parents are really having a tough time reconciling their own alcohol use with these conversations that they're supposed to have with their children, you know, and, and as sort of a, a wine mom culture has proliferated over the last few years and there's social media memes kind of um, making jokes about how alcohol is almost a parenting requirement at this point, um, it really is, it, this campaign for a number of folks has, has raised a number of social issues. And so, you know, the website, like I said, provides some, some tips and scenarios, but it, it really is an opportunity for um parents to start reflecting on, you know, their own alcohol use and thinking, you know, maybe maybe you don't want to be that mom that has the kid, you know, on the first day of school when he profiles his family, say, mom's favorite drink is Chardonnay. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I know that, that you know, I enjoy right? my Chardonnay, but I certainly don't want my, you know, my kid bringing that picture home from school. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's about com- having conversations with children, but it's also about just becoming a little more aware as adults of how we are using alcohol and how we are modeling in front of children. And I I think that that's a good thing because it it does seem that they do pick up on cues when we don't expect them to be picking up on cues. So maybe it is time for us to look at a a little bit of our own behavior modification in regards to this. They absolutely do. And, and, you know, another another interesting piece that came out of our research, we asked parents, um, you know, do you secure the alcohol in your home? And what we found is that about seven in 10 Pennsylvania parents don't. And, And I can tell you, I was one of those parents. I never really thought of, you know, putting the liquor on the higher shelf or, or not having the beer in the fridge. So one of the other things that we're encouraging parents um, to think about in this campaign is the accessibility of alcohol in the home because it's important because about 85% of underage drinkers get that alcohol from the, their own home or the home of a friend. So it's not to say that, you know, we need to be locking up, you know, the beer coolers when our kids turn eight years old, but it is just, again, an awareness and, and to get adults to start thinking about that accessibility um, because it can lead uh, to underage drinking. And uh, certainly there are parallels here, Elizabeth, with some other problems that we're experiencing in Pennsylvania right now, and they would have to do with the opioid crisis, the medicine cabinet, and so on and so forth. So this might be able to be a a multifaceted discussion with your kids about uh, the dangers of some other things that they may come across in the home. You're right. And when we talked to parents, particularly in our focus groups, you know, we did get uh, some of that sediment of, you know, there are so many other scarier things that I've got to worry about with my kids. You know, this has kind of taken a backseat. Thinking about having a conversation with my child about alcohol hasn't been a top priority. Um, but what, what we're trying to help parents understand is that alcohol is often something that leads to a lot of those riskier behaviors. Um, and even outside of that, starting these conversations conversations young, having them early and often can really set a great parenting foundation, you know, related to underage drinking, but just as you said, related to everything else as well. If you kind of set that foundation where you have um, an open two-way conversation and, and your children become comfortable talking about these things with you, how can, that, how can that not benefit them as they face riskier and scarier things as they grow and mature? The conversations can sort of grow and mature as the child does. Yeah, and you said something earlier that I, I don't know if I've thought about much uh, before, and that is that when your kids are eight, they are more inclined to listen to you than when they are 14 or 15. And then they're, they say, mom doesn't know anything. Look at her. And, right. And they, yep. they're kind of derisive of, of your uh, existence. So maybe it is good. Yeah. And when, that's, when you have and the window you know, open the research it, supports yeah. it. 
but it is sort of that golden age of opportunity. Um, and the influence that parents have, I think parents sometimes underestimate their own influence. Um, 80% of teens say that parents are the biggest factor in whether or not they decide to drink. But again, if you lay that foundation even before they're teens and you can really sink into their heads before they um, turn into those teenage monsters, you know, it, it's a great foundation to set. So yours aren't there yet. You have two little boys, right? And they're not in the uh, the uh, age where they're uh, rebelling openly, right? <laughs> Right. Not not yet. No. But I mean, you know, that first conversation with my son, it, it was eye opening to just to understand that he knows what drunk means. And, you know, I asked him if his friends talk about it at school and, and kind of got that like eye roll like, oh, my gosh, that stuff is so gross. Why would we even you know, why do we even think about it? Um, but but it, it like I said, I know where he is. And then when the holidays came around and there was the kid wine and there were the adult cocktails and and he had some questions about, you know, why why is it that I have the kid wine and you have that and and we had a conversation about how you know during celebrations everybody can have a special treat to help celebrate with but the kid wine is non-alcoholic and the adult cocktails are alcoholic and you know there's reasons for that you have uh, some materials that are in, in a good centrally located place so if if people are listening to us right now elizabeth and they're thinking well i'd like to know more and uh, i'd like to do some research you want to uh, hip them to the website that you guys have put together which is extremely user-friendly and contains all kinds of resources for uh, parents with kids of, of all ages, which is awesome. Yeah, thanks. Uh, that was the goal. It's uh, Um and the website provides a lot of information. It provides information on the physical effects of alcohol on the developing body. It provides information on the um, legal and criminal consequences for both adults and children uh, engaged in underage drinking. And then it provides us tips and scenarios of how to, you know, how to identify these teachable moments, how to turn everyday activities into opportunities for these discussions. Um, so we did. We developed it intentionally, you know, again, bits and pieces, not overwhelming, um, to try to really facilitate these conversations between parents and their kids. And we all know, and I know, I know when the kids are real little, they'll never latch onto this, but we do know that there are real evidence-based studies that show, Elizabeth, that the, the when the brain is forming, that uh, alcohol can really harm a child's uh, development and their full brain development really does not take place until they're in their early 20s. And I know that's a hard sell, but when when I think about kids today, I think about, uh, well, a lot of them want to be at their greatest potential. Maybe we'd be able to tell them, listen, you're really hurting yourself with this. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, what we heard from talking to Pennsylvania parents is that different things appeal to different kids, and that's why we've tried to present a variety of information on that website. There are kids who are fascinated by science that really, you know, we heard from parents say, oh, my gosh, my son would be fascinated to learn about that, the brain damage, the nerve cell damage, all of that medical stuff would really appeal to him. Other parents we heard from say, ah, that's not going to get to my kid, but what will get to my kid is if he gets caught underage drinking and can't play soccer anymore. Um, so, you know, we again, we tried to provide information in a variety of different um, different subject matters, different approaches to the conversation. Um, and I also wanted to stress on the website, we developed, we put all of our advertising on the website. So the TV commercials, the radio commercials, we have web banners. We've also tried to make this campaign accessible to partners in promotion, whether that be a school, a local community organization, um, public health interests. 
anybody can go onto that website and grab a one-pager or a handout or, you know, utilize our digital assets and, and promote them on social media. So those partners in prevention that this message really resonates with and, and may have an avenue for reaching even more parents, we encourage them to go to knowwhennowhow.org and, and help to, to promote this message as much as they can. Okay. Before we let you go, Elizabeth, what else what might we be missing or, or what don't we know that we should be doing that you think is it, it, it should be very obvious to people, but sometimes they miss it. Um, you know, there are five key takeaways that we're stressing here. Number one, learn the facts. A lot of those facts we just talked about, the consequences of underage drinking, the impacts of underage drinking. Um, again, parents have a tremendous influence, so encouraging parents to use that influence in having these conversations. Um, starting the conversations earlier than parents thought necessary, I think that's one of the big things that came out of this, is that, you know, parents of eight-year-olds went, oh, wow, is this really when I should start thinking about it? And, and we think that it's effective if you do start that early. Um, you know, this one's sort of a gimme, but, you know, parents stay involved. Know where your kids are going, know what they're doing, and even beyond that, get to know the parents of your kids' friends. Um, because even if your alcohol is secure in your home, maybe it's not there. Um, you know, kids are, kids are curious creatures, and, and they're going to be leaving your environment uh, at some point. So knowing that community that you're a part of. And then finally, again, just start to think about how you can secure alcohol in your home. Elizabeth Brassell is the director of the communications office for the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board. More information about their campaign that helps parents start a conversation with their kids about alcohol can be found at knowwhennowhow.org. You're listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. April 29, 1962, brought together a cast of intellectuals, statesmen, scientists, and artists under America's roof, the White House, for a -a once-in-a-lifetime dinner, hosted by President John F. Kennedy and his wife Jackie. The backstory of this amazing gathering is detailed in a new book that just happens to be written by a native of Luzerne County. We recently had the opportunity to speak with Joseph Esposito, author of Dinner in Camelot, the night America's greatest scientists, writers, and scholars partied at the Kennedy White House. Uh, one thing I could tell you was that uh, is that I uh, I met John Kennedy in Hazleton on October 28, 1960. He was campaigning uh, in uh, northeastern and southeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, he later spoke in Wilkes-Barre, and I had an opportunity to speak with him in Hazleton. Got his autograph on the cover of a Saturday Evening Post with a drawing done of him by Norman Rockwell. And that sparked an interest, a uh, lifelong interest, really, in politics, history, and government. And I went on to serve in three presidential administrations. Oh, so good to have a, a native son back on our airwaves with us to talk about your book. And I, I know when we have people over to the House, Joseph, sometimes we sweat it trying to pick out uh, who who's good to come over, who gets along with who, and uh, maybe some uh, rabble-rousers. And on uh, April 29th, 1962, it was quite the assembly there at the White House for dinner, right? It was. Uh, 175 guests. It was the largest dinner of the, the Kennedy era, and uh, it was um, really an, uh, an unbelievable galaxy of, of geniuses, uh, 49 Nobel Prize winners. And even those people who weren't Nobel Prize winners were very distinguished in their in their fields. Among those who weren't Nobel Prize winners were Robert Frost, William Styron, James Baldwin, Catherine Ann Porter, John Dos Passos. Ernest Hemingway's widow was there, sat next to President Kennedy, and the 
the, the principal after-dinner um, literary presentation was an unpublished manuscript uh, written by, uh, by Hemingway, who had died the year before. Uh, there was there were some contentious relationships, but many of these people had known one another for years, had worked with them with one another. Several had worked on the on the uh, the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos. Uh, the preponderance of people were scientists, but there were the literary people. There were two no two Nobel Peace Prize winners as well. But the the list of uh, distinguished people just goes on and on. Robert Oppenheimer, Pearl Buck. Uh, Linus Pauling. And the Linus Pauling connection is really quite interesting because he had uh, won the, the Nobel Prize in 1954 and had become a a, a significant uh, peace activist. And uh, he was in he was invited to the dinner because he he had won the Nobel Prize, but uh, he was out picketing the White House that same day and the previous day as well uh, because he was unhappy that President Kennedy was getting nowhere on um, and, uh, on a uh, measure to uh, limit uh, nuclear testing. So he was picketing outside the White House and went over to uh, the Willard Hotel uh, across the street from the White House uh, to change into his tuxedo and went into dinner. And uh, in the receiving line, President uh, Kennedy said, uh, well, you've been around the White House a a few days already, haven't you? And then before he introduced uh, uh, Pauling to to, uh, Mrs. Kennedy, he said, uh, I hope that you will continue to express your opinions. And Pauling had a great time. Uh, He actually led uh, this spur-of-the-moment impromptu dancing in the hall. It's amazing to think, Joseph, that there wouldn't be some kind of trepidation about that with those who protected the president, knowing that somebody who expressed open dissent was being allowed in. Well, um, it was a different time, of yeah. course. And uh, I had the uh, the opportunity to to, uh, to, speak to, to speak to several people associated with the dinner, including Clint Hill, who was uh, Jackie Kennedy's uh, um Secret Service uh, agent, and uh, he discussed the the the, the, uh, the measures that they took, which were rather uh, rather uh, lax, certainly by today's standards. In fact, the writer James Baldwin, um, when he went uh, was going into the dinner, he was outside at the, the little the little guardhouse there at the southwest gate of the White House, and uh, he forgot his uh, his um, uh, his invitation, and he also forgot his wallet. So uh, the uh, the guard there said, "Is there any possibility you might have your name in your jacket?" And Baldwin opens his jacket and says, "James Baldwin." He said, "Well, that's fine. You can just go right in." These were different times, indeed, for sure. They were. They were. What was the occasion that brought all these people together? What, what kind of uh, mailing did they get, or, or why were they invited? What, what, was, what was going on at the White House? Well, at the very outset of the Kennedy administration, it, it had been decided uh, that they wanted to make an overture to people in the arts and, and to the, the broader intellectual community. And uh, so at the, at the inauguration in January 1961, uh, there was a large representation from people in the, um, the, the, the literary community, the, the artistic community. And there were a number of dinners and, and presentations at the White House that preceded this dinner. 
Pablo Casals, for instance, the cellist, the great cellist, had performed earlier at the White House. And as an interesting side story here, he had last performed for Theodore Roosevelt at the White House. So it, uh, 60 years later, he comes back and performs in the, during the Kennedy era. But it had been decided that um, uh, it was uh, a, a, a desirable uh, opportunity to invite the Nobel Prize winners. Primarily, uh, these people were scientists. Uh, the overwhelming majority of the of these Nobel Prize winners were were scientists. There were Nobel Prize winners in peace and pro buck in literature, but they were they were scientists. And someone worked on the Manhattan Project and. And uh, John Glenn was there as well. Of course, he wasn't a Nobel Prize winner, but um, it was an overture to the scientific community and to really thank them for for their accomplishments. This was the the height of the Cold War, and also really the height of uh, of, of uh, in, in many ways of, of American scientific achievement. And it was a time when we had people from the Manhattan Project. Uh, and, and people who were like, like John Glenn, who were involved in the very early stages of the of the, uh, of the space race as well. Was there um, a, a special way that the seating was devised? I, I mean, I think about uh, <laughs> trying to do that under normal circumstances and try to get people together. Uh, did they try to uh, put an artist with a scientist, or what was what was the rhyme or reason to it? Well, it was very carefully calibrated, and uh, and the first lady Jackie Kennedy certainly had a role in that. And the uh, the, uh, the principal uh, responsibility, though, was for was by uh, Tish Baldridge, who was the social secretary. And um, they had tables, round tables of ten ten people each, and there were two rooms that were used. And there was the state dining room where the president uh, essentially presided, and he had the what would be considered perhaps the main table where the Robert Frost sat and Mrs. George Marshall and Mrs. Um, Ernest Hemingway sat and, and, and several others. And then because it was so large, they had to use another room. And so the blue room was, was employed and, and, and uh, Mrs. Kennedy uh, was there and uh, she had, uh, it, was a, it was in effect the head table for, for that room. And John Glenn was there, and Pearl Buck, and Lester Pearson, who the following year became Prime Minister of Canada, was was, was seated there as well. So they had um, they had a public address system, and when President Kennedy spoke, uh, people in both rooms could hear him. After the dinner, they had a uh, they had a bit of a reception, and then they had an entertainment uh, discussion, literary discussion of. Uh, of works by by Hemingway, but also Sinclair Lewis, and and uh, the, uh, the the Harvard commencement speech of by George Marshall, which laid out the Marshall Plan. And I also talk in the in the book about this after party that was held in the, the private quarters for a, a select dozen people uh, in in the second floor at the Yellow Oval Room, in which people like William Styron was there and Robert Frost and others. Just uh, an extraordinary time, and um, I, I guess I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about the menu, wouldn't I? Because I know a lot of people are foodies in this day and age. So, how, what was considered on that? Did you get a choice on the card, or what? What happened there? Well, no, uh, there was uh, the, the White House brought in a, uh, a, a rather notable French chef uh, at, at the outset. It was uh, someone was selected by by Jackie Kennedy, and. Uh, 
and he was a uh, he was a very particular uh, a chef, and they would sit down and devise what what the menu would be for each of these these uh, these big dinners. Interestingly, uh, when they were having discussions about the the dinner and the and the chef, the executive chef was present. Uh, the social secretary would constantly refer to the dinner as the brains dinner because these people were so intelligent. And he misunderstood and thought that they were going to serve brains for dinner. And he, he protested, said that brains was just not appropriate. Uh, but uh, as it turns out, uh, the, the, uh, the, main main, the, main, uh, the main course was uh, Beef Wellington. And uh, in the book, I, I actually have a reproduction of the, of the dinner menu. And uh, how many, I, I guess because you have, uh, you know, your White House photographer there and, and so on and so forth, how many photographs e- exist and, and what strikes you about some of them? Many photographs exist at the Kennedy Library in Boston, and that was very useful for me. I have about 30 photos in the book. Uh, Life magazine, which was certainly prominent at the time, had a, had, um, a number of, uh, of additional photographs as well. I think what uh, what's, what struck what's, would strike people would be the uh, the, the, the sense of, of gaiety of the evening. Uh, these were these were extremely intelligent, accomplished people who really enjoyed themselves. And uh, uh, Linus Pauling. Um, even though he had been picketing the White House, uh, he led this impromptu dancing, and there's some photographs of that as well, which is, is quite fascinating. And uh, what's your relationship like with uh, Rose Styron, uh, the widow of William Styron, and and she wrote uh, in your book the foreword, right? So what is what is their what is their place uh, with you and with the Kennedys? Well, uh, Rose. Rose Stein was very gracious, and, and uh, we had a, a long interview in which she uh, discussed her uh, memories of, of the dinner. Uh, it was very helpful, uh, and, uh, uh, and and as you as you note, she wrote the forward, which I was I'm very grateful for. Uh, William Styron, who was the, who wrote um, Sophie's Choice and the Confessions of Matt, of Matt Turner and other other um, notable works, uh, had not ever had never met. Uh, John Kennedy, and uh, he was. They formed a, a friendship uh, at that dinner in the after party, actually, um, at, uh, in, in the in the residence. And uh, the relationship between the Kennedys and the Styrons, uh, not just John Kennedy, but Jackie Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and Ted Kennedy and and others, ha- has continued for more than fifty years. And it was a result of that dinner. Interesting. Uh, Joseph Esposito, native of Hazleton, who went on to uh, work in a couple of different administrations and uh, was uh, intrigued enough to write a book about what must have been an absolutely amazing dinner party. I would be so nervous at this. It would be uh, unbelievable for me. Uh, But the book is called Dinner in uh, Camelot. Uh, To your knowledge, has there been a social event quite this intriguing since then? No, not at all. Okay. there have been there have been some notable dinners, but uh, nothing of this of this stature. I mean, when you think about forty nine Nobel Prize winners, uh, the really the greatest intellects of the time being honored, and uh, I, I think it, what most people know about this dinner, if they have heard about it before, 
is a, a quote that President Kennedy uh, gave as part of his remarks. He said, I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent, of human knowledge that has ever been gathered together at the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. <laughs> that's, that's some saying. If you, if you could, Joseph, say that you could have people over to your house for a, a dinner, and they could be from any part of history, have you thought about who you might have over? Well, uh, I'm a historian, so that's a challenging question for me. Um, I would be, uh, I would certainly be interested in talking to Franklin Roosevelt and talking about uh, the, the great challenges that, that he faced with the Great Depression and World War II. Surely some of the people who were at this dinner would be uh, those I'd be interested in talking to as well. But uh, it's an interesting idea to come up with the uh, with which people you would uh, be most fascinated with uh, at, at a dinner party. Our guest, Joseph Esposito, recapped the social event that took place 56 years ago this weekend in his book, Dinner in Camelot, the night America's greatest scientists, writers, and scholars partied at the Kennedy White House. You're listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.